Today at Reader's Corner, Mark C. Johnson, author of Mansfield and Dirksen, Bipartisan Giants of the Senate. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. The United States Senate is so sharply polarized along partisan and ideological lines today that it's easy to believe it was always that way. But in the turbulent 1960s, even as battles over civil rights and the war in Vietnam dominated American politics, bipartisanship often prevailed. In his latest book, Mansfield and Dirksen, Bipartisan Giants of the Senate, Mark Johnson highlights two remarkable leaders whose commitment to bipartisanship made them giants of the Senate, Republican leader Everett Dirksen of Illinois and Democratic leader Mike Mansfield of Montana, the longest-serving majority leader in Senate history. The political and personal relationship of these party leaders, extraordinary by today's standards, is the lens through which Mark Johnson examines the Senate in that tumultuous time. Mark Johnson served as a top aide to Idaho's longest-serving governor, Cecil D. Andrus. His writing on politics and history has been published in the New York Times and elsewhere, and he manages a blog and podcast called Many Things Considered. He last joined us in 2021 to talk about his book, Tuesday Night Massacre, Four Senate Elections and the Radicalization of the Republican Party. Mark Johnson, welcome back to Reader's Corner. Gosh, what a pleasure to be back with you, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a great one. I, uh, As I told you before we went on the air, I was so impressed with, uh, I guess you could say, how much we must have taken for granted in these glory days when Democrats and Republicans could get together and in bipartisan fashion pass some of the most important legislation of the era, uh, if not, in fact, uh, the history of the republic. Uh, why don't we begin with your giving us a snapshot of each of these men, just who they were, where they came from, and how they wind up in the Senate, and then we'll talk about what they do together once they're there. Well, thank you for that, Bob. Um, you have observed politics for as long as I have, or longer perhaps, up close, and met lots of political figures. I would say these two guys are uh, in a almost in a class by themselves in terms of uh, how interesting they were as personalities, the approach they brought to political leadership, and the backgrounds from which they each uh, rose to eminent political leadership positions in the country. Mansfield was uh, born in New York. His mother died when he was quite young. His father was injured in an industrial accident and shipped him off to live with relatives in Great Falls, Montana, as a very young boy. By his own admission, he was a troubled kid, dropped out of high school and lied about his age, uh, actually falsified his birth documents to uh, enlist in the United States Navy during World War One. Uh, came back to Montana after that war experience. And I have to insert here uh, parenthetically, Bob, that as far as I know, Mike Mansfield is the only member of Congress ever to serve in three branches of the military. He huh. is in the Navy, he was in the Army, and then in the Marine Corps, finally. And Throughout his life, very, very proud of his uh, Marine Corps service in particular. But he came back to Montana after the war, World War One, with no education to speak of, uh, very few prospects, and did what so many young men at that uh, era did. They went to work in the natural resource industries, uh, working underground in the copper mines in Butte. 
he met a, a remarkable woman, Maureen Hayes, who was a teacher, and she convinced him that the path forward to a better life was to get a education. So she continued to work, put him through uh, the University of Montana. He essentially earned his uh, high school equivalency degree while he was gaining his bachelor's degree uh, <laughs> in Missoula, and then eventually got a master's degree in history and taught at the University of Montana. Elected to Congress in 1942, and then eventually the Senate uh, 10 years later. Dirksen's uh, trajectory is not unlike Mansfield in that he came from very humble beginnings, uh, growing up on a, a pretty uh, hard scrabble farm in central Illinois. Pekin uh, went in the military during World War I, served overseas, came back, got a law degree at the University of Minnesota, entered local politics. And kind of remarkably, in 1932, as a Republican running for Congress, is elected in the Roosevelt, uh, kind of against the Roosevelt landslide that year, one of a handful of Republicans, uh, new incoming Republicans who are elected during that uh, Roosevelt landslide. He serves uh, a number of years in the, in the House and then goes to the Senate in 1950. Uh, their paths really begin to cross uh, late in the 1950s when Mansfield becomes uh, the whip, the assistant Democratic leader to Lyndon Johnson, and Dirksen becomes, uh, in 1959, the Republican leader of the Senate. And then uh, the story really takes hold in 1961, after the Kennedy uh, election, and Mansfield becomes majority leader, position that he holds for 16 consecutive years. And the book really focuses, Bob, on those years when Mansfield and Dirksen were in leadership positions in the Senate across the aisle from each other, but often in harness together and working on, as you suggest, some of the great issues of the day, like civil rights and voting rights and creating Medicare and so much of the great society program of Linda Johnson. You know, your mention of 1961 and the start of the Kennedy administration reminds me of something that is uh, hardly the most important thing that you have to say in your book, but I found it so uh, interesting from a personal standpoint, and it has to do with Kennedy apparently having some kind of a voice problem. And what this story is really more than anything else is is how personal these relationships between these Democrats and Republicans could be at this time, because here you have Kennedy who has a voice problem and Dirksen, who probably has the greatest voice in the United States Senate, and he's known for that. He's an aspiring actor. Tell us what uh, what transpires between these two as Kennedy tries to solve his problem? Well, it's a very illustrative story, I think, of the relationships that Dirksen uh, had with presidents of the opposite party. So he obviously is in the Senate when Jack Kennedy comes to the Senate in 1952, the same time that Mansfield arrives, and they become acquainted. And uh, later, when Kennedy is in the White House, uh, Dirksen's wife, Luella, has to remind him from time to time that you really shouldn't be calling the president of the United States Jack when he calls up on the phone. <laughs> and uh, so during the uh, campaign in 1960, Kennedy is out on the stump uh, speaking several times a day, and he starts to lose his voice. And uh, he and Dirksen talk about this, and Dirksen says, Jack, in that great <laughs> voice that he had, Jack, right. you need to uh, project more from your diaphragm. You're talking too much from your throat. And you really need a voice coach to help you get uh, better at this. 
And remarkably, at least as Dirksen saw it, Kennedy took his advice, you know, improved his speaking style based upon the advice of the Republican leader of the Senate. You know, there's an old saying that I think has been attributed to uh, Arthur Vandenberg, the Republican senator from Michigan who worked closely with Truman during the days when they had many foreign policy challenges. Uh, Politics stops at the water's edge. And one of the things that you call Mansfield's defining characteristics is his willingness to support a president on foreign policy, even when he disagrees with him. How's that? Yeah, I think um, in a way that is uh, maybe for some good, but mostly for ill, uh, there is a rivalry now between uh, congressional leaders and the president of the opposite party, no matter who is in the White House and who's in charge of Congress. That leads to this kind of wary standoff at times, particularly on issues of foreign policy. You're even seeing it right now with regard to what's happened in Israel and the ongoing fighting in uh, Ukraine right. with uh, Russia. And, uh, you know, kind of a constant uh, nipping and chipping away at Joe Biden's heels over handling of these foreign policy issues. Mansfield and Dirksen had this notion, uh, quaint maybe at the time and characteristically devoid of, uh, of our current politics, that the president, you know, really had the preeminent role in foreign policy, that Congress could and should provide oversight, provide uh, direction from time to time. But at the end of the day, the president had to be in charge of foreign policy. And uh, they were very deferential, both of them, to presidents of both parties in terms of how they conducted foreign policy, which is not to say they didn't freely give their opinions about what they thought should be done. But at the end of the day, they realized the president had that responsibility and they were going to, to the extent they possibly could, try to support him. And uh, it got Mansfield in some considerable trouble with Lyndon Johnson later when uh, Vietnam War became such a, a front burner issue in American politics and American society. And Mansfield was an outspoken opponent of use of U.S. ground troops in Vietnam. And he really, uh, in a in a low key but nonetheless unmistakable way, clashed with Johnson over uh, Vietnam policy. Dirksen, mm-hmm. on the other hand, was perhaps Lyndon Johnson's biggest supporter in the Senate when it came to uh, foreign policy and dealing with uh, what he saw and Johnson saw as the expansion of communist influence around the world and particularly in Southeast Asia. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Mark Johnson, author of Mansfield and Dirksen, Bipartisan Giants of the Senate. Tell us about Mansfield's trips abroad. Uh, He he was the college professor, and it seemed like he liked to play that role on the floor of the Senate. You don't get any of that anymore. As a matter of fact, it reminds me of something you said in your acknowledgments, and I, or in your epilogue, I believe, where you quote Senator Merkley from Oregon as saying that he heard one floor debate in the years he was in the Senate, and I think he was in his second term when he said this. But getting back to my question... Let, let's talk a little bit about Mansfield's foreign policy expertise by virtue of the fact that he got by with a lot of traveling, did he not? <laughs> well, you know, you could probably make the case that he was the most traveled member of Congress during <laughs> his time, particularly his time in the Senate. Yeah. He would almost annually take a, a major trip to foreign capitals, meet with foreign leaders, went to Southeast Asia many, many times. 
he was by uh, education and academic training an Asian scholar. So he was deeply read into the history of uh, countries like South Vietnam and Cambodia and really knew his uh, Chinese history and Japanese history. So he was a, a remarkable, I would say, a scholar politician in many ways. He wrote very, very well. Uh, he wasn't the speech maker that Dirksen was in terms of his uh, captivating voice and ability to hold an audience. But in terms of substance, uh, you could argue that he was one of the great, the great writers, I think, uh, in the history of American politics in terms of his ability to be able to craft, craft a message, particularly around a foreign policy issue. So, yeah, he, he would uh, take these extended trips to uh, Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia uh, in the 50s and into the 60s and uh, often would uh, really kind of immerse himself in the local culture and disdain the uh, kind of canned State Department briefings that were offered up to visiting politicians and uh, preferred to sit down with reporters, people like uh, David Halberstam in Vietnam and Malcolm Brown, the AP correspondent in Saigon in the 60s, and get from them their take on what was really happening on the ground there. So he was arguably about as well informed as any possible diplomat and served on the Foreign Relations Committee for uh, virtually his entire time in the Senate, but uh, probably could have conducted a foreign policy seminar for almost any country in the world. And you mentioned the fact that he was an Asia expert. Uh, that seemed to serve him well after his Senate days ended because he became the ambassador to Japan for many years, didn't he? Yeah, he had a remarkable post-electoral uh, life in politics. Uh, Jimmy Carter uh, named him to be U.S. ambassador to Japan in 1977 after his Senate retirement. And then Ronald Reagan kept him on uh, for two more terms into the 80s. So he's both the longest serving majority leader in Senate history and the longest serving U.S. ambassador to Japan in history. You tell a tale about Dirksen that is not about Mansfield, but just about uh, the decency and the humanity of these two men. It's about a visit to the hospital to see Scott Lucas, who Dirksen had actually defeated to get into the U.S. Senate, did he not? Yes. What happened there? Scott Lucas, frankly, deserves to be better remembered than he is, I think, in American politics. He was the Senate Majority Leader at the time that Dirksen defeated him in 1950 for the Senate. It was kind of a brutal campaign uh, that I think Dirksen came to regret in some respects because he'd been pretty rough in going after uh, Scott Lucas, who he had known pretty well during their rise to uh, national prominence. And uh, some years later, after Lucas has been out of the Senate for some period of time, he's hospitalized, uh, suffering, as I recall, from diabetes, and eventually had to have an amputation. Dirksen goes to visit him in the hospital after this, an interval of many years of them not having much communication or, or, or both of them remembering that 1950 campaign in kind of brutal terms. And uh, again, a testament to the guy's humanity and his sense of decency that he goes and visits his former opponent and basically apologizes to him in the hospital for, you know, roughing him up during that campaign many years uh, prior. So you have a chapter in the book uh, on the elements of leadership exhibited by these two gentlemen, uh, Dirksen and Mansfield. What in your mind from writing this book stands out as the 
maybe the best example of how they work together to forge a piece of legislation, uh, working with the president, perhaps, to get something done that, that we don't see much of today? Well, I think there are two things that are really important that differentiate this period and these leaders from uh, so many people in our politics today. One thing that is dominant and is in the title of the book is their commitment to a bipartisan approach to so many issues. Um, the idea that compromise is not a dirty word, that it's how things get done in politics in normal times, that you have to be able to reach across the aisle and make common cause with uh, people of the other political party. So that really stands out for me in, in the character of both of these guys. Second thing, Bob, is the commitment that Dirksen and Mansfield had to the Senate as an institution. They loved the Senate. Mansfield often uh, said that he had three great loves in his life, Maureen, his wife, Montana, and the Senate. And as an institution, you and I know the Senate is a weird duck. It's not uh, apportioned in any way in a small-D democratic fashion. A state like Idaho has as much clout in the Senate as California does. But that's the way it's written into the Constitution. It was the grand bargain, part of the grand bargain to get the Constitution in place in the first place. The Senate has some quirky rules, this unlimited debate, uh, 60 votes to advance almost anything. And it demands a an approach to lawmaking that takes that all into account. We can argue that it shouldn't be that way, but the fact of the matter is it's been that way for 250 plus years, not likely to change anytime soon. And Dirksen and Mansfield understood that in order to get things done in politics, you had to be able to work within those rules and make the institution function. And uh, to a remarkable degree, despite, you know, as you said at your introduction, really tumultuous time in the country, they arguably had as great a legislative uh, agenda and accomplishment as any two members of Congress over a 10-year period in the history of the Republic. You're listening to Mark C. Johnson. He is the author of Mansfield and Dirksen, Bipartisan Giants of the Senate. I took down a quote in your book, and, and by the way, I, I thought your research was impeccable, not not only on the large issues, but on the little bitty tidbits of information that that historians missed uh, in, in, in writing the first draft. Uh, but you found them. And I think this has to do with LBJ advising Mansfield on how to get Dirksen aboard. I don't know whether it was the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, or what, but I'm going to read you the quote, and then you can fill us in on the details. The quote is, And don't forget that Dirksen loves to bend at the elbow. I want you to drink with him until he agrees to cloture and deliver me two Republicans from the mountain states. (laughs) I thought the bend at the elbow uh, description of of Dirksen's uh, enjoying drinking was uh, priceless. Well, I love one quote, uh, particularly from Dirksen. Most politicians today wouldn't talk about their drinking habits, but a reporter (laughs) asked him one time what his favorite uh, adult beverage was, and he said they had a a deal in the family that Luella, his wife, preferred champagne, but he was a friend with Jonathan Daniels, as he put it. So, yeah, Dirksen, Dirksen enjoyed uh, a, a drink of bourbon on a fairly regular basis, like daily, for sure. <laughs> and uh, he cordoned off a portion of his Senate office 
to be the uh, Twilight Lounge, as he dubbed it. And there was a clock on the wall that only had the numeral five on it. So it was always five o'clock in the Twilight Lounge. <laughs> so, you know, Johnson really understood this guy. They liked each other. They were um, consummate transactional politicians in the sense that they could, uh, you know, make a deal. And uh, Johnson would regularly tell Dirksen, I need three or four Republican votes on this particular issue. And Dirksen would say, uh, well, I'll see what I can do. And then inevitably he would produce those three or four votes in exchange for an appointment to the Federal Communications Commission or the Interstate Commerce Commission, something that he wanted or something that he wanted for the state of Illinois. So again, they understood each other. They respected each other. They knew each had a job to do. And Dirksen could cuss him out uh, and then go have a drink with him and make a deal. It seems like Mansfield had a style of leadership where he, I think you you point this out, deferred to others, not always the first to speak, uh, and uh, found ways of passing on the credit in ways that brought people together. Well, there are just a hundred different examples of where he refused to take credit for something that he clearly had uh, masterminded. Uh, One particular incident, there was a piece of housing legislation that had been uh, hard worked and and finally passed through the Senate. And Mansfield had been very instrumental in getting it steered. But he uh, shows up at the uh, signing ceremony and lavishes praise on another senator who had very little to do with it. And it was just his style. One of his aides uh, later, Bob, said that he operated the Senate in an almost a Gandhi-like fashion, that he had a, a commitment to politics uh, as not a nonviolent sport, if you will, not going to engage in the typical partisan back and forth that you see so much of in politics and always has been a part of politics. But he kind of put it on hold during uh, the time that he was majority leader. You can search high and low and find just a handful of examples where Mansfield was really critical of Republicans on anything. And many, many times he would tell fellow Democrats, you know, we need to work with these people, Uh, particularly after 1964, when Republicans took a real drubbing nationally. Goldwater loses in a landslide to Lyndon Johnson. And Mansfield says to his Democratic caucus, we need to we need to lift up this Republican Party. We need a good, strong, conservative party in this country. And they've taken a real drubbing, and we have some responsibility to kind of help them get back on their feet. A remarkable uh, approach to political leadership that, uh, you know, is almost a one-off, I think, in our history. Right. You know, your subtitle of the book is is perfect. But after I finished reading it, I thought, you know, it's called Bipartisan Giants of the Senate. And I would only add that it's bipartisan and courageous giants of the Senate, because in so many of the examples you give of how these two men worked together, and in some cases where they were working independently of one another, uh, they managed to muster up incredible political courage. For Mansfield, it seems like it was, I mean, one example, the Gun Control Act where he had to go back to Montana and explain himself. Yeah, well, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King both assassinated in 1968. Congress um, determined to do something about uh, providing some sideboards on certain types of uh, guns in the country, and the actual Gun Control Act of 1968 passes. 
Mansfield is virtually alone among Westerners in voting for that legislation. His fellow uh, Democrat in the Senate from Montana, Lee Metcalf at the time, said Mike Mansfield's the only Democrat in the West who could vote for a gun control measure and get away with it. But he did come back to Montana and explain the vote uh, in detail to his constituents. And uh, it was not popular by any means in Montana then, as it wouldn't be a popular vote today to uh, support a gun control measure. But he did it. And uh, in part, he did it also because a young Montana Marine, again, the connection to the Marine Corps for Mansfield, the young Montana Marine was shot and killed in the District of Columbia in a way that Mansfield, that really, really uh, cut him deeply. And he reached out to the family of this young fellow, uh, communicated with them, actually, you know, with no announcement to anybody, went and visited with the parents of this young fellow who had been murdered. And it really touched him deeply and convinced him that he had to try to do something uh, to rein in gun violence in the country. He was very, very hurt and personally injured, I think, not too strong a word, by the death of Bobby Kennedy and particularly the death of John Kennedy in 1963. And on the Dirksen side of the equation, uh, you point out that he had a great relationship with LBJ. And LBJ, of course, had his great society programs. But this is Everett Dirksen, the Republican from Illinois. And as I told you once when you called me to tell me you were going to do this book, uh, I didn't know Dirksen in my days as a very, very young staffer in Illinois. But uh, I did have a chance to listen to him uh, from the podium a few times. And I know there was a strong conservative element within the Republican Party uh, that wouldn't have stood for a lot of what Dirksen was up to with LBJ when it comes to getting the votes to pass these great society programs. I guess that's a pretty good example of courage if there ever wasn't. Well, absolutely. And... uh... You know, time and time again, he would lead a divided Republican Party to a majority supporting the legislative program of a Democratic president. He did it in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, a year later with the Voting Rights Act. uh, And then so much of the great society legislation, Medicare, creation of public broadcasting, the National Endowments for the Arts and Humanities, passage of the Wilderness Act. Uh, on and on and on, uh, immigration reform passed in that period. And it all passed. Every single one of those pieces of legislation passed with a bipartisan majority in the Senate. And Dirksen often delivering uh, the Republican votes because he was, I think, was seen by his fellow Republicans, even those who couldn't go along with his often wholehearted support of Johnson's agenda, with real respect for his legislative acumen and for, as you suggest, his political courage. So remarkable ability, I think, to put the nation's interests ahead of his own partisan interests. Right. He was a very conservative guy, no question. Yeah, yeah. You write in your in your epilogue to the book that uh, a couple of things have changed since the days of Mansfield and Dirksen. Why don't you share with our listeners uh, how that works uh, then and how it works? Well, you've already shown us how it works then, but uh, what, are, what are we dealing with now? What, what doesn't work now well, that you, works so well? Yeah, you mentioned uh, Senator Jeff Merkley uh, from Oregon earlier making the comment that he'd only seen 
one yeah. real debate in his time in the Senate. Well, the world's greatest deliberative body, which the Senate used to be called, doesn't really deliberate anymore. Uh, the committee system, for the most part, uh, doesn't really uh, function very effectively, if at all. Most big uh, pieces of legislation that pass through the Senate are concocted in the majority leader's office behind closed doors. The Senate uh, process of kind of oversight and fact-finding on issues like foreign policy rarely happens uh, anymore. You don't see these uh, panels of experts on particular issues coming before the Congress and the Senate in particular and providing outside expertise that might guide uh, the development of legislation. So every issue now is uh, a 60-vote threshold to pass. You've got a former football coach from Auburn now holding up, uh, what, 300 or 400 military appointments just because he can and is trying to make a point, uh, but the Senate doesn't function that way. It just can't function that way. So there's a lot that's different, and I think what is fundamentally different is the character of the people in the leadership jobs. And I, you know, have come to believe more and more over the last 10 years that a character really does count in politics, how you, uh, how you behave to other people, the candor with which you approach the job, uh, your ability to admit that you might be uh, mistaken once in a while, or Mansfield's mantra that you had to practice self-restraint. You might have the power to do something, but is it the right thing to do? Well, your book is a great reminder of the way things were and the way things ought to be in the United States Senate and, for that matter, uh, the United States House of Representatives. Uh, I want to thank you for writing the book, Mark, and most importantly, thanks for coming on to Reader's Corner and talking about it. I strongly recommend uh, a reading of this book uh, as a, just a great example of, of what can be in the United States Congress. The book... Mansfield and Dirksen, Bipartisan Giants of the Senate, by Mark C. Johnson. Mark Johnson, thanks for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Bob, it's really a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.